The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, April 23rd, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, President Trump lit into reporters, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and Joe Biden. But the thing he most wanted to light into was us, you and me, all of us. He addressed his theories to Dr. Deborah Burks, who seemed to be trying to jump out of her skin as he talked about getting light into it. I don't know, maybe it's me projecting. Just like light works. I mean, President Trump knows how light works. He said this. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, which you can do either through the skin or... Uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs, and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it would be interesting to check that, so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see. But the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's uh, that's pretty powerful. Sounds insane. But follow me here. Maybe what we need to do is just get little globules of the sun and force that down people's throat. And really, what is the sun other than hundreds of thousands of simultaneous hydrogen reactions? Okay, you know how Kim Jong-un is getting a little sick? What if we launch the bomb now? Maybe it kills him, maybe it doesn't, but the light can cure us all. It's a win, win, win. You know what? Maybe we need to pay attention not to anything Trump says, but to ESPN programming, the NFL draft. Now, perhaps you've heard, if you're watching the NFL draft right now, you heard this leading up to it, that the draft will not be occurring in person. Therefore, this is the phrase they're using to describe it. The NFL draft, obviously, they were going to have it in Vegas. Now they can't have it in Vegas. So they had to come up with a solution, and they're doing a virtual draft now with all these teams. Virtual. It's a virtual draft. Nuh-uh. It's an actual draft. The virtual component is what they were going to do, float all of the draft picks on a boat across the lake in front of the Bellagio in Las Vegas. Because there is no lake in Las Vegas. That's a virtual lake. The Bellagio doesn't actually exist in Las Vegas. It's on the real Lake Como in Italy. Usually the players drafted are given a baseball cap. You will get concussed instantly in the NFL wearing a baseball cap. That's virtual headgear. And in most years, the draftees would shake the commissioner's hand and he welcomes you to the NFL. That's also virtual. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. If you meet him in person again, it will probably be to argue your way out of a fine. Everything we ever knew about the NFL draft is virtual. Airsats, inauthentic, put upon, make-believe. It's all a pretend exercise. In this draft, this supposedly virtual draft, this is the draft that a college player will be told, your future employer is on the line, they have decided that you will be playing for them, and they want to tell you this in a fairly impersonal way. That, my friends, is the actual. That is real. That is really what's going on. It should be the biggest night, not for players in the NFL, but for the field of human resources and the submitting of W-2 forms.
I'm just glad I got a chance to set you straight and ruin literally the only sporting event of the last month and for the next two or three months. You're welcome. On the show today, I look inside the Wisconsinites who contracted coronavirus after going to polling places that should never have been accepting voters, what those numbers really imply. But first, sometimes we use this phrase, the most vulnerable, for certain people in our society. And we mean different things by that, but we often mean the homeless. Now we've expanded the definition of who are the most vulnerable people. Maybe we didn't think of as vulnerable two months ago. We know to be vulnerable now. But you know who are still the most vulnerable? It's still the homeless, the unsheltered. As always, an afterthought among officials. Now they are a much more dire thing than that. Now, it doesn't mean great solutions are being offered. It just means we need solutions more than ever. Josh Dean, a New York City homeless advocate, is up next with an update. The way to combat this pandemic, we're told, and it is true, is to shelter in place. One big problem, what if you don't have a shelter? What if you don't have a place? For the tens of thousands of New York's homeless, and this is only New York's, those are big problems. And this problem is replicated throughout the country. So I just wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of what really happens to people who cannot shelter in a time when shelter, always a necessity, never a luxury, but could be a daily matter of life and death. Joining me now is the executive director of an organization called human.nyc. Josh Dean advocates for the homeless, and he's been on the front lines of trying to solve some of the dire problems that homeless people are experiencing at this moment. Hello, Josh. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mike. So first, let's talk numbers. There's the homeless and there are the unsheltered, but just take New York City. How many people are we talking about? Sure. So in New York City, the latest data from HUD indicated that the total homeless population across folks who are unsheltered, across single adults, across adult families, youth, those in domestic violence shelters, the total number is around 80,000. The population that human.nyc works with the most is those who are unsheltered. And that number is probably the most difficult to track. Every year, the city sends a couple hundred volunteers out in the middle of the winter um, from midnight to 4 a.m. to count people. They do the census, yes. The latest number from that was around 3,600. But advocates are going to guess due to the limitations of that count, that the number is probably closer to 7,000. And also when the weather gets relatively better, there might be more people on the street. Yeah. I mean, people are going to stay where they feel safest and most comfortable. And I think that, you know, given that the shelters in New York City are by no means luxury places, a lot of folks may choose to avoid them more so when the weather is a little nicer than when it's freezing cold. Now, there is a problem of when homeless people are sheltered, even temporarily sheltered, those are often conditions that don't fit in well with what the public health advocates and really anyone with a lick of sense are advocating. People are maybe in bunk beds, maybe in beds just a couple of feet apart. Maybe they don't have access to the most hygienic showers, even even soap to wash hands. So it seems like The problem isn't just that it's more consequential or more dire that we solve the usual problem. The problem is also that the usual solution isn't really a solution in this case. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. The folks that we've been talking to who are currently living in the adult shelters 
are sleeping in rooms with potentially dozen other men, dozen other women, and their beds are, you know, they've sent me photographs of their beds being separated by 35 inches. They cannot socially distance in homeless shelters in New York City. It is not physically possible for them to follow the CDC guidelines. Not to mention, there is a lack of PPE, personal protective equipment, in all of those shelters, not just for the residents, but for the staff themselves. So we're not just seeing you know, numbers of homeless folks getting sick. We're actually seeing the staff that work at the shelters getting sick as well. Well, what are we seeing in terms of the numbers of homeless people getting sick? So as of April 20th, there were 617 total positive cases that the Department of Homeless Services in New York City was tracking. 540 of those cases came from folks who were in shelters, and that was across, I believe, over 150 different shelters. 23 of the cases came from folks who are unsheltered and on the streets, and 54 came from agency referrals, so folks who are showing up to the hospital independently of their homeless service provider. Really important to note that those numbers are undoubtedly a drastic underestimate of where we really are with this crisis. And I'll give you a a really concrete example why. A couple weeks back in Boston, they tested every single resident in a shelter that had around 340 people. And 30% of them tested positive, despite not showing any symptoms. So, yeah, and this is and this is Boston, where the outbreak is nowhere. It's not good, but it's nowhere near as bad as New York. That's exactly right. Yes, and the just the level of asymptomatic spread is really concerning because we don't have the testing in New York City to test everyone in the shelters. So folks could be walking around the shelters, sleeping, you know, a couple feet from each other, have the virus, and be spreading it, and not be showing, you know, so much as a cough. When your organization or your clients, when they talk to you, when they express, this is bad, this is a hotspot, do you hear, hey, it's the best we could do? Or do you hear, we know, uh, maybe here's what we're trying to do and they're not doing it. What's their attitude when they respond to that seemingly obvious point? Our advocacy efforts were part of a really fantastic campaign called the Homeless Can't Stay Home Campaign. And alongside other advocacy organizations, we've been asking the city to provide 30,000 hotel rooms, single rooms, single bathrooms to every New Yorker who is living in a congregate shelter, every New Yorker who is living on the streets, and the homeless youth and domestic violence shelter system as well. That adds up to about 30,000. In response, the mayor has only put forth 2,000 new hotel rooms, and even those rooms wouldn't be single rooms like we've been asking for. So the folks that we're talking to, I mean, they're terrified, anxious, feeling left behind more than ever before. You know, I've had a couple really heartbreaking conversations with the folks that we work with, and I really, you know, understand the fears and the concerns people are sharing. They're, they're legitimate, and it's really disgraceful how little the city has moved to protect these folks, especially when you note that there are 100,000 vacant hotel rooms across the city right now because no one's traveling here. And there is federal emergency funding for the city to be putting people up in those hotels. So all that we're missing now is the political will from the mayor. And we really hope he turns the corner on this and, and gets moving on it. It's already too late, but better late than never. Aren't there hotels that regularly do take in the homeless as part of uh, their contract with the city? Yeah. So for a long time, because the supply 
of shelters has been lower than the demand for them. And in New York City, fortunately, we have a right to shelter. A lot of time, the city has had to rely on commercial hotels to put people up in. So the mayor, when he announced he was going to be moving more homeless folks into hotel rooms, he kind of deceitfully and sneakily said, we're going to bring the total number of single adults in hotel settings up to Mm -hmm. 6,000. Of course, not acknowledging directly that 3,500 of those folks have long been living in hotel settings that happen to be doubled up as shelters. So the extra 2,500, what kind of hotels are they in now? Hotels that were days in two weeks ago or hotels that have been previously used for this purpose? Yeah, that would be hotels that were like days in two weeks ago. Hmm. And do you get resistance from those hotel operators? I mean, they're being paid for their rooms. Our organization doesn't work directly with the hotel providers. Um, you know, I've actually heard of hotel owners actually proactively reaching out because, of course, they need the business right now. The solution of moving people into hotels not only benefits the homeless folks, which is the most important, but it also keeps the hotels afloat during this very difficult time for them. Is this mainly a funding problem? No. You know, the ESG funding, the emergency funding from the federal government is there. We've been working with folks who are incredibly smart at, at reading through the fine print of the funding bills. And um, the funding is there. We could, we could use it and we could start using it immediately. The problem is that the mayor doesn't seem to be prioritizing folks who are homeless. He's, he's left them behind. And among his list of priorities right now, those folks haven't fallen on the list. So it's inexcusable given that we have the funding and we have the hotel rooms. Do the people you talk with who maybe have access to shelter in a group home, normally I guess they'd rather stay in the shelter, but now are they choosing to stay on the street just because it's just because they're more able to distance out on the streets? You know, we have unfortunately heard a couple accounts of people who have left the shelters and are now staying on the streets because they feel safer there due to their inability to socially distance in the shelters. But at the same time, with the economic factors we're actually seeing the homeless shelter population reach a record high because more and more New Yorkers are becoming homeless. Also important to note, you know, the folks that Human.NYC organization works most closely with are folks who have been unsheltered long before COVID-19. So even without this, they felt safer living on the streets than in the shelters. And, you know, that's who we spend the most time speaking to. And what those folks are really coming up against now is just more difficult than anything they've experienced on the streets before. The places that they were able to shower at before, like recreation centers have closed down. Uh, Places like Starbucks where they were able to use the bathroom are no longer letting them in. So, you know, I've talked to folks who haven't showered since the city shut down. They've been using baby wipes. I've talked to folks who've had to travel for, you know, upwards of an hour to try to find somewhere to use the bathroom. And then the lines for food at places that are still out there and giving out bagged meals are wrapping around blocks and avenues uh, longer than we've ever seen before. There is a common um, charge that many of the many of your the exact population you deal with are there because of mental illness, and whether or not uh, there is a judgment attached to that, the thinking goes that it's very hard to get them services because you know they're mentally ill, they aren't making rational choices. I want to know how true that is, but to some extent, it could be true. And how much should we worry about those people? And should we worry that those people are also in this situation, you know, not just a danger to themselves, but a danger to others? The percentage of folks that fall into that category you've described is very, very small, 
relative to what the general population would assume. So most folks who are out on the street, you know, they may be working through some sort of mental illness, some sort of substance use issue, but they're able to live in a, uh, in a place independently. And what it comes down to at the end of the day is what they're being offered. So if, you know, the city's contracted outreach teams are out there um, and they offer someone to go to a congregate shelter, there's a good chance the person's going to say no because they feel safer on the streets. But if they were being offered a single hotel room, there's a much higher chance that they would say, yes, absolutely. Just to highlight that in lieu of the mayor's actions or inaction, rather, we started a GoFundMe campaign and we raised over $50,000 and we started to move some folks from the streets into their own hotel room. And when we asked them if they wanted to do this, every single one of them said, yes, immediately. Some of them thought we were joking and they're all, you know, in hotel rooms now and doing perfectly fine. If you can survive on the streets, you can survive in a hotel room. And And, and these hotel rooms were just like rooms that you booked on Travelocity or whatever? Yeah. I think we booked them on uh, hotels.com. There you go. And that's it. And and they're in the hotels and they wanted to go and they're safer and they're sheltering in place. They're also, you're allowing it or those donations are allowing them to follow the dictates of the government. Sort of an inversion of normal homelessness. Usually being homeless would be uh, punished. Now it should be keeping someone from getting shelter should be the punishable offense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, some of the anecdotes we've heard from the people who we moved off of the streets and into the hotels through this GoFundMe have just been astonishing. I'm going to, there was an amazing story that came out in a, in a New York City publication called The City. And j- just a couple of stories that people shared. One person said, for someone living with IBS, colitis, and asthma, I can finally say I feel relieved. I do not have to cause self-harm by holding my bowels until I get to the Bowery Mission. Before the pandemic, I could go to a McDonald's or something and use the bathroom, but now everything is closed. I don't like going to the drop-in center anymore because it's so crowded and dirty. I haven't showered in months. So that's just one of the stories we've been hearing. I mean, folks on the street, what they've been up against is unimaginable for most New Yorkers and the highest needs that they were sharing with us were, we don't have a place to shower. We don't have a place to go to the bathroom. We don't have a place to wash our hands. And we don't have a place to socially distance. A hotel room solves for all four of those things immediately. What do you worry could happen if this isn't addressed in a timely and serious manner? I, I hate to be grim. There's, there's a lot of people out there who I've grown to know very well and care for deeply. Uh, over the course of doing this work for the past three years. And I worry they're not going to make it through this if we don't move yesterday. The more we learn about this virus, the more we see how how dangerous it is and, and how it spreads. And if you don't have the ability to wash your hands, take a shower, go to the bathroom safely and stay away from other people, there's a good chance you you will contract it and combine that with the fact that homeless folks are already, you know, suffer from chronic health conditions, are already disproportionately vulnerable to the virus. It's really, really alarming. I worry every day about the folks that are still out there on the streets. I mean, so great we were able to get 25 people into hotels, but there's thousands more who are still out there. And to be clear, this is not our job. We did, we did a GoFundMe because the mayor's not doing his job. Um, but this is this is the city's responsibility to do this. It's not just the folks on the street. It's the folks in the congregate shelters who are sleeping feet away from each other. 
who are sending us videos of you know the person on the bed next to them coughing, but they have nowhere else to go and sleep. The inaction from from Mayor de Blasio is inexcusable, and um, the effects of that could could really be devastating. Josh Dean is the executive director of human.nyc, and that is his website, but so is Homeless Can't Stay Home, homelesscantstayhome.org. A lot of information is up there as well. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. You know, it's a fool's errand to take Donald Trump's dictates on corona coverage to heart. I mean, today he sounded this note about testing. The problem is if we did 350, if we did... 350 million tests, one for each person. The media would say, oh, you should have done two for each person. No matter what you do, it doesn't make any difference. It's just like the ventilators. I talk about it all the time. Nobody ever mentions ventilators. One of the hardest things a ventilator. I actually have sent some mention of ventilators. I have, in fact, talked about ventilators in, I think it's maybe three of the last four gists. And the point I've made is that a lot of the assumptions about ventilators were inaccurate for a lot of reasons. Uh, the overall projections may have been off, or maybe the projections were off exactly because the government took the right or at least enough actions to make the worst case scenario not happen. Also, ventilators really may not have been as essential as we thought. All of this can be true. And to be fair, just say that the ventilator picture is not as disastrous as feared. Trump, by the way, can still, is still lying about a lot of things, including ventilators. I mean, it could be that he was totally ignorant about ventilators, got pretty lucky, or it could be that there was a kernel of truth to his dismissiveness about the direness of the projections about ventilators. But here's the point I want to make. There is the truth, and then there is what Trump says, and there so very, very often different things. But that doesn't mean that they have to be 100% opposite. The truth doesn't always act as a clean and direct rebuttal and comeuppance of the worst arguments put forth by the president or the forces of corona denial. And we shouldn't assume that it does. And this brings me to Wisconsin. The city of Milwaukee and the state of Wisconsin have, to some extent, reaped what they sowed. It reported seven voters or poll workers have been infected by coronavirus in Milwaukee, the city. And here is Chris Hayes with the statewide totals. Talking Points member reports at least 19 people who voted in person or worked at a polling site that day that have tested positive for coronavirus. One state senator told reporters today, quote, I fear this is just the beginning. Well, here's the thing. If it's not just the beginning, the citizens of Wisconsin got off pretty easily. Oh, it's terrible that they had to be horribly inconvenienced by very few voting places and had to worry about their safety just to pursue their rights as citizens. All that's true. But if you compare the numbers, seven voters in Milwaukee or 19 voters in the state to the baseline coronavirus statistics, it is not an outbreak. We're not sure if all these COVID-19 sufferers were reported in one day or were spread out, but either way, you can't consider that an actual spike. Milwaukee's been averaging over 64 cases over the last seven non-weekend days. There, there are usually dips over the weekend, meaning seven out of 64, or a little over 10% of cases in one day stemming from an activity taken by thousands of people is, if anything, a little low. Statewide, 400,000 people voted in person. The state's been experiencing around 150 new coronavirus diagnoses a day. 
with the last two days numbers topping over 200. Now, 19 cases out of 200, it's a little less than 10%. 400,000 people voting in person in Wisconsin, a state of 5.8 million people. It's also a little less than 10%. It's closer to 7%. Let's be totally fair. But it's pretty much in line with the overall figure. So you can say that those 400,000 people experiencing 19 positive cases because of voting, but it's also quite likely that 19 cases would occur with any randomly plucked group of 400,000 Wisconsinites. Look, if I've confused you, look at it this way. If 400,000 Wisconsinites wore brown socks on April 7th, which seems like a plausible number, it wouldn't be out of line for 19 of those brown sock-wearing Wisconsinites to test positive for COVID. Just, this is just going by the current rates in Wisconsin. And we wouldn't be saying, my God, the brown socks caused the outbreak. Now, I definitely think that poll workers sitting inside, dealing with members of the public, they're really vulnerable. It wouldn't be surprising if absentee voting there would have meant somewhat fewer corona cases. But I just want to be consistent that if I make a huge deal about the big outbreak in the Smithfield plant in South Dakota because of the poor choices of the governor, I should be honest and committed enough to accuracy to point out that this is another data point that I sensed was being played in the media as an illustration of politics putting people's lives on the line. And it's a much less clear case of that actually happening than in South Dakota. Not that the decision was good, just that the consequence is a little different from that horrible consequence at the pork packing plant. And I also want to remind you that the horrible consequence is what was predicted. If we hold this in-person election, not 90% like probability, 100%, there will be more transmission than there would otherwise be, and probably a lot, and there will be more deaths. That was Milwaukee County Executive Chris Abley. I do believe it was a valid concern. I'm not saying that his job shouldn't have been to dismiss the concerns, but I do think that the worst fears don't look like they've come to pass. Of course, given the stakes, the very viable alternative of voting by mail, the extremely poor reason to reject that viable alternative, which is the perception it would favor a party other than yours, having in-person voting should never have happened in Wisconsin on April 7th. Dodging a bullet shouldn't be the standard, but barring more evidence, it does seem to be the accurate description of what happened in Wisconsin on Election Day. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST associate producer. If she had given every one of the GIST staff a lollipop, the rest of us would just have said, why not to? Daniel Schrader is a producer of the GIST. We have him as a loose-in-the-hips, shutdown corner who could thrive in a cover two or base four defense. He'll be happy to know that. The gist. You know, we're the number one player on the board while at the same time going a bit overboard in an above-board fashion while also being a borderline case. Funny how that works out. Oomperu, Deperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>